History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 304th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're going to be talking about a jail riot, ghosts, and the penitentiary of New Mexico. All of these things go hand in hand with each other. This location was suggested by our listener, Amy Sandoval. And I know that I do have some young listeners out there. This probably is not going to be the episode for them. The riot that we're going to be talking about was the worst jail riot in American history. And some of the things that happened during it were horrific. Before we get into that, I want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Andrew, April Ann, Candy with a K and two E's, April with a Y, Mitch, Kenneth, Cynthia, Stephanie with an F, Emily, Scott, and Troy. We had a lot of guys join us this week. I'm so excited. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Noddity. The Earling possession took place in 1928 and is said to be one of the most well-documented possession cases of the 20th century. Most of you have either watched The Exorcist or seen some other movie or documentary about exorcism. This case would be about Anna Eklund, who would suffer demonic possession over and over in her life, starting at the age of 14. According to reports, Anna's aunt had been a witch who cursed her food with spells, and then later her father would heap curses on her and wish for her possession. Father Theophilus Reisinger, a native Bavarian and a Capuchin monk, would be the man to finally free her when she was 46 years old. If this account is true, Anna displayed some of the most horrific and bizarre behavior, Father Theophilus took Anna to Erling, Iowa, to the convent of the Franciscan Sisters on August 17, 1928. Upon arrival, Anna purred like a cat, demanded unblessed food, spoke in languages she didn't know, had to be held down by six strong nuns, vomited tobacco leaves and other spice-like debris, and she vomited, urinated, and defecated inhuman amounts of waste. The really unbelievable stuff included her lips growing to the size of her hands, she levitated many times. From a prone position, she leapt from her bed onto the wall above the door, where she maintained a position of crouching, defying gravity, and her body would bloat to twice its size. The claim was that Anna was possessed by many demons, described as, quote, a swarm of mosquitoes. On December 23, 1928, Anna stood erect on her bed and then crumpled back down as the demons left her, each one calling out its name as it left. The exorcism was done in three rounds and took 23 days in total. I'm skeptical of these demon possession stories, but if the Erling possession is real, it certainly was odd.
Pull the covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. <laughs> and now, this month in history. month of August, on the 22nd, in 565, the Loch Ness Monster is spotted for the first time. Now I know many of you are thinking, what is Diane talking about? The story of the Loch Ness Monster didn't come to worldwide attention until 1933. That is true, but the first sighting supposedly was much earlier. The Loch Ness Monster, or Nessie as it came to be known, was named for the place she was said to inhabit in the Scottish Highlands. It was a dinosaur-like creature with a long neck that had one or more humps protruding from the water with these front flippers to help it get around. When scholars began investigating the tales about Nessie, they discovered that the first account of a sighting dated back to 565 AD in the semi-legendary tale of St. Columba. He was an Irish monk who had sailed to Scotland to spread the gospel of Christ. As he traveled to the land of the Picts, he reached the river Ness and found some people burying a friend. They told the monk that the man had been attacked by some water monster that had snatched at him as he was swimming and bitten with a most savage bite. After that, St. Columba ordered one of his acolytes to go fetch the boat, which meant swimming across the river. That was when the monster appeared. The story goes that the monster was lying hidden in the bottom of the river and suddenly emerged and swimming to the man as he was crossing in the middle of the stream, rushed up with a great roar and open mouth. Everyone was scared except St. Columba, who raised his hands and made the sign of the cross, and after invoking the name of God, he commanded, Think not to go further, nor touch thou the man. Quick, go back. And the monster did, and a bunch of people were converted. Is the story reliable? We know that pictures of Nessie were hoaxes, and many researchers think most sightings of Nessie are misidentifications, but it sure is fun to think that the Loch Ness Monster that captured my imagination as a kid just might be real. Jails and ghosts seem to go hand in hand. So much dark and negative energy in one place. Inside these walls have resided some evil or bad people, and even some innocent people. Those accused are guilty of some evil doings. The Penitentiary of New Mexico has the dubious distinction of being the site of the worst prison riot in American history. Prisons are already notorious for being havens for paranormal experiences, but what ensued during that riot left behind a residue just begging to feed negative spiritual energy. There are those who claim the land here is cursed. Join me as I explore the history and hauntings of the penitentiary of New Mexico. Imagine for a moment the energy connected to a jail complex. You have the fear, the anger, and the sorrow from the criminal, and I would imagine even the victim. After years of sharing the history and hauntings of a variety of historic jails from around the world, I've learned that many of them had similarities that made them not only places of inhumanity, but keen spots for hauntings. Nearly all of them housed men, women, and children in the same areas, and overcrowding was the norm. There was no plumbing, so buckets or honeypots were used. Some crimes considered worthy of punishment would be ridiculous by today's standards like stealing bread. And every one of these jails had the hole, 
solitary confinement, a place of utter hell that could leave someone insane. Sickness, abuse, and murder were rampant behind the bars. While we would all like to believe that the purpose of jail is to reform, at its core it's meant to punish, and I'm fine with that, but within reason. Because when things happen outside of reason, hauntings are not far behind. As I look back over the list of episodes I've done featuring jails, I counted 16 of them. And this doesn't really even include some places that were cities that I've done where a jail was included in it. I probably missed a couple of those. Most of them are considered the most haunted jails in the world. There's episode 34 on Kilmanham Jail in Dublin, Ireland, with the spirits of former prisoners and wardens, with the warden spirits being the most terrifying. Alcatraz in San Francisco was the subject of episode 53, and is thought to be one of the most haunted jails in America, with the spirit of the butcher and something evil with glowing eyes in the hole. The old Charleston jail has made two appearances in episodes 55 and 262, and is the only jail on the list that I visited so far. But I had no experiences myself, although people claim the spirit of Lavinia Fisher is there. Episode 66 featured the infamous Ohio State Reformatory, haunted by the warden's wife Helen, wayward boys, and shadowy figures. Episode 68 featured the Maitland Jail, a jail that housed Australia's worst criminals, and is home to the spirit of Sawas, who hanged himself inside the door of cell 4, and there's also possibly a former guard here. Episode 84 features the Carleton County Jail in Ottawa, Canada, and there are so many spirits here that it's been declared the ninth most haunted building on the planet. Episode 86 had us in Australia again for Pentridge Prison, with a female spirit and the ghost of Mark Chopper Reed. Episode 104 took us to a Civil War-era prison known as Andersonville, with the spirit of Father Whalen and the sounds of gunfire and foggy apparitions. Episode 112 on Fremantle in Australia featured the jail there that has the spirit of the only woman executed there, Martha Rendell and the sounds of a scuffle at the gallows. Episode 113 featured Eastern State Penitentiary that is probably the most haunted jail in America, located in Philly, with hauntings in cell block 12 and cell block 6. Episode 116 features Moundsville State Prison, or more famously known as the West Virginia Penitentiary, with its castle-like structure and a ghost of a maintenance man, shadow figures, and a prisoner named Robert. Episode 215 that includes the Darby Jail in Darby, England, has the spirit of a murderer, a female ghost, a human-like gray mist, and child ghosts. Episode 220 with the Kentucky State Penitentiary and spirits of some of the 162 men executed at the jail. Episode 223 featuring the old Idaho State Penitentiary and its haunted cell house 5 and solitary confinement. Episode 284 has the Squirrel Cage Jail in Council Bluffs, Iowa, with spirits of a little girl and cats, and lots of sounds of jingling keys and loud sighing, and the hauntings seem friendly, which is good news for us, since we'll be investigating it in September. So needless to say, I have covered a lot of jails all around the world. If you haven't checked out all those episodes, I encourage you to do so. Clearly, there are definitely a variety of ghosts in these places. You heard me talking about having the guards there, the prisoners, children, and then things that we don't even know what they are. Lots and lots of variety. But there are many similarities too, including cold spots, disembodied voices, and the slamming of cell doors on their own. Added to this list of haunted prisons is the penitentiary in Santa Fe, New Mexico. 
Parts of it are still open today as a maximum security prison, but the jail that was original to all of this dates back to the late 1800s. Congress had authorized for New Mexico to build a prison here in 1853, and it would not be open until 1885, so it took it a while to get built. This would be the original Old Main, and the design was based on the same plans used for Sing Sing and Joliet. This prison would put the prisoners to work making bricks, and this would be its first industry. The next industry would be building highways, and New Mexico would be the first western state to use prisoners to do this work starting in 1903. So I imagine here you have your first chain gangs working on the highway. It would seem that this prison and riots would have a long and tense relationship. The first would take place on July 19, 1922. Prisoners were angry over the overcrowding, excessive force used by guards, and the bad food. The inmates were all out of their cells and refused to go back to them when the guards ordered them to do so. The tower guards apparently weren't fooling around and they just opened fire, killing one prisoner and injuring five others. They were reprimanded for their obvious heavy-handed approach, and a report claimed that guards had a failure to understand how to control a prison population and were inexperienced. Despite decades passing before the next riot, nothing would be learned. The second riot took place on June 15, 1953, and was fueled by inmates protesting excessive force used on them. They grabbed Deputy Warden Ralph Pahash and 12 guards and held them hostage. By the end of this riot, two inmates were dead and several others were injured. It was decided after this riot that it was time to build a new facility, and that was done in 1956 at a spot about 11 miles south of the original, and they would dub it the main unit. This was a bad place to build. The land here is said to be cursed. More than likely from something that happened back in 1680. Spanish settlers had moved into the land that was already occupied by a Native American tribe. So obviously we're going to get some bad blood going on here, a lot of tension. Add into the mix that these Spanish settlers decided to make some of these Native Americans their slaves. And those tribe members decided to revolt. They stripped the settlers naked and beat them. During that revolt, 400 settlers were killed. So this prison was already haunted by something before it was even built. Because that land was drenched in blood. When you hear stories like this, it also makes you wonder, is it because of this particular action that we have some kind of negative energy that's connected to this land? Or was the negative energy already there and it helped fuel this kind of interaction? Was there a dark energy that was attracted to this area because of what happened here? Or was it already here and said, hey, come play with me. And we're just going to continue to have a lot of negativity coming from this area. Things were good here for a while, with reform being the focus. Under President Lyndon Johnson, Project Newgate was started, which developed programs for job training, community service, and education. The population was kept below capacity as well. So things were good until they weren't good, and then they got really bad. The programs were stopped in 1975, and lockdowns were done for long periods of time. One really disturbing incident was called The Night of the Axe Handles, which sounds to me like a really bad horror movie, but was actually punishment dealt out by guards. The inmates formed a work strike in 1976, and the deputy warden stopped it by using tear gas. 
The prisoners were run out of the dormitory, stripped naked, and forced to make their way down a gauntlet of axe-handle-wielding guards who beat them. What fueled the flames of the worst prison riot in America, I would say, are based on two things. One, prisoners had clearly some legitimate beefs about the quality of their conditions. They were not allowed recreational time, the sanitation was horrible, and the food was nearly inedible. There was overcrowding with 1,156 inmates in a prison that had beds for less than 963. A visiting warden reported that this was the most disgusting prison he had ever visited. Inmates made several complaints, but everything fell on deaf ears. The second catalyst was a snitch system that was in place turning prisoner on prisoner. Let me try to explain this snitch system to you. Obviously, we know in every prison you're going to have the guys that are telling on the other ones so that they can get special treatment by the guards. So they might say, hey, we know there's some drug deals going down over here. And then the guards may give them extra canteen money or cigarettes, something like that. Well, this snitch system was about some really big stuff. So it was necessary to put these snitches into protective custody. So they were kept in a special dorm. The problem is, generally speaking, when you have a snitch system, the guards keep quiet about who the snitches are. But that's not the way this worked. The guards didn't protect the snitches in any way. So it was almost like this rumor mill where you'd have the one guy coming over and telling you a rumor and then you'd run off and tell the other person, hey, this guy over here says this about you. So all of this bad blood is being developed between the prisoners and the guards are facilitating it and they could care less about anyone being protected. This was an angry volcano ready to erupt. And when it did, hundreds were injured and dozens were killed. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Hey, Mort, come here for a second. Okay. I know you work really hard, big guy, and all that effort and sweat can really affect your health. And I want to show you something. Careof is a subscription service that delivers vitamins and supplements customized for your specific health needs, Mort. Careof can get you into a healthy routine. Like Jesus-size. Um, not quite. You take this really easy online quiz that asks about your lifestyle, goals, and diet, and it gives you personalized recommendations. And as I found after taking it, you can also choose supplements you want to try. Mort is very busy. It only takes about five minutes, and what saves even more time is that the vitamins and supplements come right in the mail. You don't have to go to a store to get them. And they come in your own daily pack. And they'll even say Mort on them. Can they add the amazing? I'm not sure Mort the amazing will happen, but what is amazing and different about Kerov is those little packets are compostable. So they rot like a body? Uh, yeah, sort of. Check out Kerov's website for tips on how to compost those packs. And you'll be happy to know they have vegan options, Mort. Mort is lactose intolerant. I know. I found it really easy to use the website and to take the quiz, and it suggested a great vegetarian protein powder for me that I think will be great for you, too. If you guys want to join Mort and I on this new easy and healthy routine, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code BUMP, B-U-M-P, and you'll get 25% off your first care of order. Again, make sure you go to TakeCareOf, not careof. It's TakeCareOf.com, enter code BUMP, B-U-M-P, and you'll get 25% off your first care of order. Take care of dot com and enter code B-U-M-P. All right, Mort, get back to work. A work and no play. 
makes Mort a dull boy. So here's our scene. This is cell block four, and the date is February 2nd, 1980. This cell block is at the far northern end from the control center. This contains the E2 dormitory, which was specifically designed for minor offenders. Due to construction, some of the most hardened and violent prisoners were moved to E2. That's right. Murderers and rapists were being housed in what basically was a dormitory. Add to this many new and fairly untrained guards. Prisoners in E2 had made themselves some prison hooch, and several were fairly intoxicated when the 1.30 a.m. count was conducted by two guards. At approximately 1.40 a.m., two inmates overpowered a guard before he'd closed the door in the south side dormitory E2. Another four officers were taken hostage. As long as the grill to the south wing was closed, this little blip on the radar would be over, as the other guards would easily be able to handle the situation. But the grill was not closed. One of the inmates took one of the guards' uniforms and positioned himself by the grill, so it kind of looked like there was somebody guarding it, only it was a prisoner who was guarding it. Officers Larry Mendoza and Antonio Vigil heard several men's voices as they ate breakfast in the officers' mess hall. They got up and saw the hallway beyond the grill filled with prisoners. These inmates would have access to the control center if that grill wasn't closed. They knew the situation was urgent. They ran to the control center and warned the officer inside about the growing situation, and then they took refuge in the north wing of the prison. So, yes, indeed, no attempt to close the grill. They just run and tell the guy, you got trouble coming, we're out, is what it sounds like happened to me. The inmates stormed the control center at 2.05 a.m., smashing the, what was supposed to be bulletproof, plate glass window with a brass fire extinguisher and this gave them complete control of the prison they could open and close almost all of the cell doors not all of them i don't know if there was something that was broken in the mechanisms but that they were going to have to go and open some of them manually and couldn't get some of them to open but for the most part they were in control of the prison at this point Some things I want to point out, not only do we have these two guards who just run off and leave the situation there, but this seems like not a whole lot of guards for the amount of inmates we've got here. We have six of them that are now hostages and two of them that are hiding. And I imagine the one who was in the control center, I don't know if he ran off or if he was taken hostage too at this point, but that doesn't seem like very many guards. And I can't believe that how do you leave something like this grill open that is so important to holding inmates in a certain area. I don't know. What did they think? They were all just sleeping? Around 2.30 a.m., several inmates broke into the infirmary, and they started dealing the drugs that were there. Because, folks, they don't just get a few drugs in a few bottles. They buy in bulk in the infirmary. So they have bulk drugs there. We're talking all kinds of stuff, because they had people who had mental illness that needed to be on medication. So they're not only drunk on hooch, they are now high too. And they all started talking among themselves about what they should do with the guards and how they were going to punish the snitches. Because remember, we had this snitch system going on. 
They're over in protective custody, and these guys know who they are. The most brutal and dark place in man was open this night. Whether it was supernaturally influenced or not, it would be pure evil. Execution squads formed, and groups started carrying around acetylene torches that had been left by construction workers. They used the torches to cut into cell block four, where many snitches were kept in protective custody. This happened around 7 a.m. The reason why it's taking them so long to get into this is, again, they had to use these torches to get in. They could not use the control center to open cell block four. So it was taking them a while to cut through the bars there. The attorney general's report about the riot stated, quote, some impatient killers threw flammable liquids into locked cells and ignited them. And when the groups got a hold of their victims, they stabbed, tortured, bludgeoned, burned, hanged, and hacked them apart. No amount of begging spared anyone the execution groups were set on punishing. And no amount of begging from the inmates, now trapped in cell block four, got officers outside to attempt to save them, even though there was a back door to route them through. The reasoning was that as long as the guards weren't being killed, negotiations would continue. The guards weren't being killed, but they were being hurt. Twelve of them would be beat and raped. The snitches were beat, raped, dismembered, burned, and one was decapitated with an axe. The axe marks can still be seen today. The official report stated that the violence had spent itself by 1.30 p.m. on Sunday, February 3rd, and the National Guard finally went in and retook the prison. They found 33 dead inmates and more than 100 others injured, including the 12 guards. Unbelievably, Old Main would remain open until 1998. Systemic reforms did follow, although there are claims that abuse continued until it was closed. Hollywood has used the Old Main as a setting for filmmaking. The Longest Yard and Zero Dark Thirty were both filmed here. Shortly after the riot came reports of weird phenomena. Inmates claimed to hear disembodied screaming, and guards started having problems with cell doors opening and closing on their own. The most consistent story about this prison are experiences with shadow beings. Former guards and tour guides claim to have seen multiple three-dimensional dark figures. And the reason why I wanted to emphasize that these are three-dimensional is we all know our shadows are not three-dimensional, they're two-dimensional. So to have something that is three-dimensional can be pretty terrifying. Negative emotions are often felt near the gas chamber, and the main areas that experience haunting activity are the tool room and laundry room. Ghost Files featured this location in its second season, and we'll discuss what they found in a little bit. A radio show was hosting a Halloween special at Old Main, and they invited a paranormal investigation group to join them. There was no electricity hooked up as they entered the dark building. After they got inside, they heard the cell doors closing, one after the other. They caught it on their recorders as well. Thing is, the door system is controlled by electricity, so there was no power to close those cell doors. It can be controlled manually, but that is very difficult as the metal wheels are hard to turn and most at this point are rusted. The group checked to see if the doors had actually shut or if they were just hearing residual sounds, and the cell doors were indeed shut. A producer on a film being shot at Old Main picked up one of the actors from the airport, and he said he wanted to take him by the old prison before shooting the next day so he could get a feel for the place. By the time they arrived, it was already dark, so they grabbed a couple of flashlights. 
Their first stop was cell block four. And the producer pointed out the axe marks on the floor where an inmate had been decapitated. Then he showed the actor the outline of a human figure that had been burned into the floor when an inmate was tortured by a welding torch. Then he challenged the actor to sit in the old gas chamber, and the actor actually agreed to do it. As they made their way to the basement, they saw a light at the end of the corridor, and they found out it was a lit candle. The candle was sitting on a chair in the room used for viewing executions. The actor chuckled and patted the producer on the back, telling him that he'd done a good job with this prank. Only the producer hadn't done this. The actor stepped into the gas chamber and sat down. When he looked up, he could see that the producer was peering into the chamber, and he looked scared and was clearly staring at something behind the actor. He spun around and saw dark figures there. The producer waved for him to get out and then took off down the corridor. The actor was right behind him, and both men ran until they got to the ground level. An actress named Sandy had been at the prison working on a film in which she played a prisoner. On Ghost Files, she informed Steve that she had a truly chilling experience. The crew had already been feeling and seeing strange things like shadowy figures that would run by. The crew was filming a scene up in the cells when Sandy got locked into one of the cells. They eventually got her out, and as she was exiting, she heard a male voice behind her say, Hey, how you doing? She said, Fine, how are you? The voice said, Fine now. She thought it was a member of the crew, but when she turned around, nobody was there. She said she almost peed her pants. To make matters worse, something followed Sandy home and was tormenting her at her home. She couldn't sleep and was getting an ulcer from the stress she was feeling. This seemed to be connected to a hat she found in cell block E2 and took home with her. After scary stuff started happening in her house, she burned the hat, but the activity continued. Amy helped her to resolve this issue, telling her different things that she could do to cleanse her home and get this thing out of there. But this is a good lesson in don't take anything from a haunted location. And haven't we covered it even with, I think it was the ghost town of Bodie. You know, don't pick up rocks and take them home with you. Just leave everything there. You don't want to bring anything home with you. And I remember watching this episode and thinking to myself when she said she'd taken the hat home because she thought it'd be really cool for her kids. I was like, oh, my God, how stupid. And then when she said she threw it in the fire, I was like, oh, no, because <laughs> then I was like, now you really can't help yourself by taking it back and saying, sorry, I took it here. It's back again. Stay with it. Steve talked to a former corrections officer who worked here in the early 1990s named Anthony. The activity here was so well known that during training at the academy, it was addressed. As I'll explain to you later, this prison system does not like to talk about the ghost stories. So the fact that they were addressing them back when the jail was still going, I find really interesting. Anthony had three inmates that he brought down to get linens from the laundry room. As they walked back, they heard a rattling noise. And when Anthony looked, he saw a shadow and he shined his flashlight at it and the beam was invisible. So the way he described it, I almost got the feeling that when he shined it at the shadow, that the beam went, like it cut the beam off or something instead of it making the shadow disappear. Because generally speaking, we all know if you shine your flashlight on your shadow, you're not going to be able to see the shadow very well. It's going to make it very dim. It was almost as if the flashlight was just absorbed by whatever this was. He gets chills just thinking about the jail. There was also Leon, a former corrections officer who really was scared of the jail. He saw shadows like regular shadows, 
but there was nothing to cast them. So he wasn't necessarily seeing these as three-dimensional, but they could not figure out where they were coming from. And Leon claimed that many times windows opened on their own as well. Amy picked up on all the chaos and horror of the riot. I sometimes feel like Amy can see residual pictures like watching a movie rather than seeing actual spirits. Just in the way that she'll describe like when people have remodeled a home or something or renovated, she knows exactly how it looked before. So to me, it's not like she's having a spirit who's telling her, hey, they changed my house or something. She's actually seeing it in front of her. But here she was also encountering entities. She said that the whole prison felt haunted and that the land was cursed. The most disturbing thing that Amy saw was a shadow figure that was completely three-dimensional. She said it was not a human spirit, but something ancient. She used the term devil to describe it. The entity was thriving in the jail. It was just eating up all of the fear, especially. We all know it seems like when there's these evil or bad or negative entities, that the main thing that it feeds off of is fear. You can have anger and depression and those things that definitely would feed negative, but to me it really seems like these things feed off of fear, and that's why they like to try to scare people. And that's what this thing wanted to do, was to scare people. It really enjoyed being in a scary place. She managed to trace its origins to a hole in the lowest area. It looked like a sewage pipe or something to me. I don't know. It was just this big open hole in the ground that was metal and there was some water in it. So I don't know exactly what it was supposed to be, but it was definitely something that I would not want to be anywhere near. And I could imagine that a devilish creature would like hanging out around. And plus, as I said, it had water in it. And we know that some of these spirits travel through water and that kind of thing. She saw many spirits that seemed to be mentally ill down near the laundry area. And Steve confirmed that many inmates were unmedicated for their mental illness. The New Mexico Corrections Department started the Old Main Tours in 2012. And so you can tour the facility and hear the stories about the riot, but don't expect to hear anything about ghosts. They don't entertain that stuff at all, which actually made it very difficult for me to get any information on the hauntings for a couple of reasons. Number one, they don't put anything out about it, and they're the ones who are going to have the most experience with it because they're the ones who are there all the time. And number two, they obviously don't let people do ghost tours there or ghost hunts. So you're not going to get information from investigation groups that have actually been there. And you're probably saying, well, didn't you mention that there was a paranormal investigation group there once before? They actually did for just a little while allow ghost tours. And clearly that group was allowed to come in. But I think they felt that it was disrespectful because of what had happened at the jail. They really wanted to emphasize the riots and the reforms that they were going into. So they didn't want to look like they were making money off of this in some kind of an entertaining way, I guess, which to me, I don't know. It goes hand in hand because you have to tell the horrible stories to explain why this jail is haunted. So I don't know. To me, it doesn't seem like you're glorifying these ghost stories. It just isn't a, to me, it's a better way to tell the story. Based on the people who have come forward with their stories and the reading that Amy did, I imagine if ghost hunts were offered here, there would be plenty of activity. Is the penitentiary of New Mexico haunted? That is for you to decide. 
Well, just another jail to add to the long list here. And so far, I haven't found too many jails that don't have hauntings connected to them in some way. So thank you to Amy for suggesting that one. All right. As you guys know, we have a lot of synchronicity going on with the History Ghost Bump podcast. And wouldn't you know, I'm doing a location here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And into my email inbox, I receive some mail from Mark Reed, who wanted to share with me about this haunted campground that's in Santa Fe, New Mexico, or at least in a town near it. And this isn't only just a haunted campground. It has claims of being the most haunted campground. So of course that caught my attention. And I thought since we're talking about a location in Santa Fe, why don't I go ahead and share this with you guys as well? The name of this campground is, of course, wouldn't you know it, Holy Ghost Campground. And it's in the unincorporated town of Torero in San Miguel County. And this is a campground that is run by the Santa Fe National Forest. So it's just outside of Santa Fe, about 14 miles, I believe. There are several ghostly stories that go with this campground. The first one dates back to the late 17th century, and it's kind of a he said, she said kind of thing. What apparently happened is there were a bunch of colonists coming into the area where the Pueblo people were living, and there was a priest with them. So it seems to me like they were kind of setting up a mission in this area, and he was preaching to the people and trying to convert the Pueblo. There were some disagreements that happened here, and in the melee, there are reports of two different things that happened. We either have a priest who killed the Pueblo people here on this land, or we have the priest being killed by the Pueblo people, and that apparently they were defending themselves against him and these colonists. I don't know which happened, but whatever it was, apparently the spirit of this Catholic priest is still here on this land where the campground is, and people claim to see his full-bodied apparition walking amongst the trees. There are more recent stories that go with this as well. And I don't know how many of these are actually urban legends. There's tales of gruesome car accidents. Lots of bikers like to come up here. And so there's brawls that have broken out between bikers because of paranormal activity that they see going on. And there are claims that state troopers have actually disappeared altogether. These forests definitely seem to have shadow figures moving in between the trees. One of those urban legends tells a tale about a church youth group that has come up here to do some camping. They were staying on two campsites near the second bridge. In the middle of the night, a group of bikers came up, tore up the tents, and took four of the kids with them, three girls and a boy. And they apparently killed them somewhere along the way and had dismembered them because parts of their body were found over in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and their heads were up closer to Wagon Mount, which is about an hour and a half away from this campground. There are those who claim that they were actually murdered before they got out of the campground, and so their unearthly wailing and screaming is heard at night. I couldn't find anything to back up this story, so clearly to me it's just an urban legend that somebody made up that they call the church slaughter. Interesting stuff, so if you're ever in the mood for doing some haunted camping, here's one place to check out. So with the Holy Ghost Campground, you can not only sit around the campfire telling ghost stories, but you could actually maybe experience your own. And isn't that a wonderful thing? I want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you would like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We are running the Flash Fiction Contest. A quick rundown of this. Deadline is midnight Eastern time, September 8th of 2019. Your word limit is 1,000. You can go over just a tad, but try to keep it under 1,000. And a creepy or scary story, 
science fiction, something of that nature. We're going to have three winners and then we'll have some runners up as well. So good luck and get your entry sent in. Also looking for your true haunted tales that you guys have had your own experiences. Doesn't have to just be in a historic location, but we'll be sharing those on the Halloween episode as well. Also looking for you guys to send in your true ghost experiences that you've had. Doesn't have to just be in a historic location. And these I will compile for our Halloween special this year. It's usually everybody's favorite episode of the year. And then tickets are on sale for the Home of the Mothman live event. It's going to be on Saturday, October 5th from 7 to 11 p.m. I'll be doing that show with the guys from over at the Brohio podcast and Jerry and Tracy Polly of Hillbilly Horror Stories. We had to change the location because the one that we had booked to use is closed. But this one's even better. It's the American Legion Post 23. And apparently, folks, it's haunted. So I'm going to bring some investigation equipment with me. And we'll see if we catch anything while we're there. It should be a great time. This is going to be in Point Pleasant. I am going to be getting a room over at the Low Hotel, which is also haunted. So I'll be doing some investigating there too. I have information up on the History Ghost Bump page. If you look up at the top, it's pinned up at the top where you can get your tickets or you can head over to the website at historyghostbump.com and look under the events tab and it's there and it has the link where you can go get your tickets. Be sure to do that before they get sold out and you get your spot. And remember, if you come, you get one of those meetup pins and you only get those pins when you do a meetup. So they're very special. Not many people have them. Want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by Care Of and the executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. Want to thank Chelsea Bishop for your one-time donation. And we want to welcome into the Necropolis, Stephanie Shirley. You're going to be getting a spot on the niche wall. Candace McCreary, you will be getting a chess tomb. And Michelle Nelson, you're going to be getting a garden tomb. Thank you to you guys for the support of the show. It is greatly appreciated. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Thank <laughs> you.